Hey, everybody, before we get started today, we just wanted to let folks know that Universal Fan Con, where we were planning to be from April 27th to 29th, 2018, and to do a live show there, has been postponed until further notice. Although we don't have any other information right now about when the convention might be rescheduled, we do want to apologize to anybody who purchased a ticket or who plans to come out and see us. We'll post an update with any official information that we receive on our website at mistinhistory.com at the link that says live shows. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I really like the TV show Timeless. It is a favorite of mine. I was really sad when it got canceled and then really happy when it got uncanceled. And in the first season of this show, it seemed like every time I turned around, I would think, hey, we have an episode of our podcast about this. It was like there was a Hindenburg and there was Jim Bowie and there was Josephine Baker and there was Davy Crockett and it went on and on and on. There were so many that before the second season started up, I actually made a board on our Pinterest called As Seen on Timeless where I pinned all the episodes that relate to <laughs> past episodes of that show. So early on in season two, I was watching Timeless and a historical figure showed up on the screen that made me go, okay, stop everything. This has to be a podcast. And it's it was a very similar reaction to the one that several of the people on the screen in the show had, because this is about Wendell Scott, who was a black driver from the early days of NASCAR. Almost his entire racing career took place in the segregated South, I didn't go into this intending to write a two-part podcast on on NASCAR, but once again, we have a surprise two-part sports podcast. Um, also, I wanted to note that uh, there are people who knew him who pronounced his name more like Wendell, but the vast majority seem to say Wendell, including... Uh, some interview with his child, some interviews with his, his children. So, if at some point you're watching old TV footage about Wendell Scott, and you're like, "Why did they say Wendell?" That's Wendell seems to be the more common. Some of that is probably an accent thing, right? Yes, probably. Like, like I could see someone with a heavy Southern accent drawing out that second syllable a little bit more. Well, and there were times that they would make rhymes, uh, ah. and, you know, cha- like chants. We don't really most of them. Uh, are, are uh, a use of a word we d- wouldn't necessarily say on the show. Right. <laughs> that would want rhyme with it if you said it, Wendell. So that might have influenced some people's pronunciation as well. So Wendell Scott was born in Danville, Virginia on August 29th, 1921. He was one of four children in a family that included half-siblings from his parents' prior marriages. Danville was largely a working-class city, with its major industries being tobacco and textiles. Wendell's father was employed as a driver for a couple of more affluent white families, and he also worked on their cars. From an early age, Wendell was learning the basics of auto mechanics while helping his father. 
During the Great Depression, work in Danville started to become scarce, and the family moved to Pennsylvania, where his dad got a job in a Studebaker factory. And it was while they were living out there that Wendell's parents split up. Wendell didn't see his father again for years, and this was really hard on him. He developed a stammer, and he didn't do very well in school. After a while, his mother moved them to Kentucky, where she had some other family. When his grandmother's health started to decline, the family was moved back to Danville so Wendell's mother could help take care of her. And this is really when Wendell started to experience the realities of segregation. His schools in Pennsylvania and Kentucky had been integrated. When he remarked to his mother that there weren't any white students or teachers at his school in Danville, she told him, and there won't be either. By his teens, Wendell was already working to try to help support the family and to buy his first car, which was a beat-up Model T that he rebuilt using parts scavenged from a junkyard. He grew sweet potatoes and tobacco to sell, and he worked at a drugstore. He left school before graduating from high school so he could become a bricklayer because he wanted to help the family afford to send his younger sister to college. Wendell Scott had spent most of his life saying that he didn't want the kind of life that was typical for a black man living in Danville, which was likely to include difficult manual labor that came with significant health risks. Working in tobacco fields and textile plants was physically grueling work, and lung problems were common due to the exposure to tobacco and fabric dust. He didn't really want to be a low-paid cog in a wheel that was mostly making money for someone else. These are... Still very difficult and grueling jobs with risks of of lung damage, Uh, but they're also a lot less common because most of the textile plants moved to Mexico and people quit smoking so much. Scott soon found that being a bricklayer just had too much in common with all those jobs that he had spent his whole life saying he didn't want to do. So he quit. He started driving for a taxi company, and gradually he saved up enough money to afford his own cab. Scott developed a reputation for being the kind of taxi driver who would get you where you were going fast and would probably also know where you might be able to find some not necessarily legal indulgences along the way. When somebody got into his cab and mentioned wanting a drink, he knew where to get one. After the end of Prohibition, the Commonwealth of Virginia allowed the sale of liquor in state-managed alcoholic beverage control stores, but liquor by the drink was still illegal. He wasn't personally much of a drinker, though. He was a devout member of the New Hope Baptist Church, although he wasn't always actively attending services. This get-you-there-fast reputation also earned Scott a police record pretty quickly, with most of his citations being for speeding. One officer in particular seemed to have a grudge against him and wrote out 11 of the 13 tickets that he received during his time as a taxi driver. Then, when he was 20, he was charged in a scheme to sell stolen motor oil, for which he served 60 days at a prison farm as part of a plea deal. In 1940, Scott met Mary Bell Calls while driving his cab, and soon they were courting. In 1942, during World War II, Scott was drafted, and he served as part of the 101st Airborne, although his actual work was about maintaining vehicles and doing manual labor. He married Mary while on leave on July 10th, 1944, and she gave birth to their first child while he was still deployed. They would go on to have six children together. Later on, they would also raise a seventh child who Scott had with another woman during his racing career and who they took in in the 1950s after the young boy's mother was killed. 
After the war, Scott went back to Danville, and the city refused to renew his taxi license on the justifiable grounds that he had way too many speeding tickets to allow that. So Scott started working on a plan to move the family out to California, but he was convinced to stay in Danville when the owner of the city's black funeral home asked if he could work on his cars before he left. Soon, Scott was picking up other work as a mechanic, building on the knowledge that he'd picked up from his father as a child and from his military service during the war. This mechanic work started to blossom into a small business housed in a tiny building that the owner of the funeral home built. But Scott took on a partner who wasn't nearly as conservative with their money as he wanted them to be. While Scott planned to pay both of them a salary while carefully saving and reinvesting for their business, his partner kept giving himself advances on his pay and eating into that next week's budget. This venture ended abruptly when Scott's partner was killed in an accident that also burned the shop down. Scott was becoming well-known as a good mechanic, but with the loss of the little shop and everything in it, he needed more income than he could really earn. So he turned to a second source of income, which was running bootleg whiskey. And we will talk more about that after a sponsor break. When Wendell Scott got out of the military in 1945, as we said earlier, Prohibition was over. It was legal to buy hard liquor by the bottle, but not by the drink in Virginia. But there was still a lot of bootlegging activity going on in the Appalachian Mountains and foothills. Franklin County, Virginia, was just down the road from Danville, tucked into the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, and it was home to a thriving bootleg industry. Scott would pick up moonshine in Franklin County, where it could be bought for 55 cents a pint, and then drive it to Charlotte, where it sold for twice as much thanks to being in a dry county. He had some local customers in and around Danville as well, but the bulk of his driving was to Charlotte and back, almost all of it at night. This is a complex, multi-person operation. Scott usually worked with a partner who coordinated with the actual bootleggers. Scott himself worked with the buyers and had little contact directly with the people who were actually making the moonshine. He had multiple cars that were specially outfitted for bootlegging, which looked like your typical junker from the outside, but had a powerful engine and an interior that was outfitted to smuggle hidden product. He would keep these cars stashed in various inconspicuous spots in the foothills, leaving his regular car somewhere else out of sight before getting into one to move the product. While bootlegging was very lucrative, it was also extremely dangerous, and Scott always kept a loaded pistol under the seat of his bootleg cars. It was also expensive. He had to sink a lot of his profit into his cars, especially if one of them became too recognizable to the police, and then he had to replace it. It was also very stressful, and it was while hauling whiskey that he started to develop problems with stomach ulcers, which would cause him trouble for the rest of his life. And yes, we know it is not clear whether stress aggravates ulcers, but he and the people around him definitely made that connection. Unsurprisingly, there are a lot of very dramatic and colorful stories about Scott's time hauling moonshine, especially as he became notorious for doing it in Virginia and North Carolina. He was an excellent driver, and he kept his cars really well-maintained, so it was hard for an officer to catch him alone. Officers would work together, with one of them staying out of sight along a road until another radioed in that Scott was on the way past. Once he was notified, that hidden officer would come out of hiding, would tail Scott with the headlights off until he was ready to make a move. 
Scott liked to say that he could outrun the police, but not their radios. And that was what happened one day when Scott was being pursued by an officer with the headlights off and didn't realize he was there until the officer shot out one of his tires. Scott dove out of the moving car, hoping that it would travel far enough to serve as a diversion. It crashed pretty quickly, and Scott hid out in some bushes until other officers arrived with a bloodhound to try to find him. And that dog did. According to Scott, it looked right at him, and then it turned around and led officers in another direction. (laughs) In interviews, he was like, I cannot explain it. That dog just let me go. (laughs) I'm having such, like, weird bootlegger versions of Disney films in my head. (laughs) There was also a high-speed Christmas Day chase when a couple of customers had asked for some product and Scott decided to take them to somebody he knew who had a supply of it. They were in the family car, not expecting to see any kind of trouble on Christmas morning. But after having picked up the whiskey, they were spotted by police on the way back to Danville. What followed was a high-speed chase, part of it with Scott driving backwards on a country road after an officer cut him off. See, this is just like to live and die in L.A. or like baby driver in NASCAR country to me. (laughs) Very baby driver, but on a dirt road. Scott got enough distance between him and his pursuers that he was able to stop and stash the whiskey and presumably get his passengers out of the car. Then he drove back to his auto garage in Danville, got out of the car, took the engine out of it, left it hanging from the hoist, and left. He wound up in court after this incident, and his defense was that the license plate number the police provided belonged to a car that was in his shop with the engine out, which they could go see for themselves. He claimed that it had been there broken down for more than a week, and the charges were dismissed. Uh, I think it's in a StoryCorps interview. There's an interview where somebody else relays this story um, and (laughs) says something like that the judge told the officers, next time you bring me him and the liquor and the engine. (laughs) Eventually, though, Scott's partner apparently set him up. This led to another high-speed chase on April 30th, 1949. Scott's goal in these chases was usually to make it to the highway, where he had more room to maneuver and could usually outrun law enforcement. But this time, just before he got to the highway, he had to swerve to avoid a group of drunken pedestrians, some of whom were his customers, and his car, which was full of whiskey, crashed into a house. Local law enforcement charged Scott with reckless driving and turned the moonshine issue over to federal authorities. A federal grand jury delivered an indictment on September 12, 1949. And although Scott pleaded guilty to his charges, he was sentenced to three years probation because he didn't have any prior moonshine convictions. (laughs) Which is kind of funny given his reputation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, Scott's wife had always been terrified of his work in moonshine, He had kept it secret from her at first, and when she found out, she wanted him to stop. Now that he had a conviction on his record, continuing to be involved with bootlegging was a much bigger risk, so he needed to find another way to try to make more money. And that was what brought him to NASCAR, which we're going to talk about after a sponsor break. NASCAR was formed, auto racing had already been going on in the United States for decades. Basically, for as long as there have been cars, people have been racing them. 
the American Automobile Association, or AAA, was a major player in these early pre-NASCAR years of racing. And people raced lots of different types of cars before World War II. And although racing has long been associated mostly with the South, a lot of these early races were really driven by and catered to the interests of Northerners. It was more about the fact that you could keep a racetrack drivable year-round in the South a lot easier than you could in the North than anything that was specific to Southern culture. Racing was far less popular during World War II since things like gasoline, rubber, and metal were all critical to the war effort. But after the war was over, stock car racing started to become the most popular variety of auto racing in the United States. So a stock car is a racing car that has the same basic chassis as one that's in commercial production, although there are a number of modifications that can be part of stock car racing as well. The largest sanctioning body for stock car racing in the United States is the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, or NASCAR, founded by Bill France Sr., who was known as Big Bill. NASCAR was founded in Daytona Beach, Florida on February 21st, 1948, and France also served as the organization's first president. He put a particular focus in promoting the sport and building new racetracks in the South. Part of the lore about the beginning of NASCAR is that it started out with a bunch of bootleggers in and near the North Carolina mountains, racing each other and honing their skills, evading the law. And then Big Bill France saw that all these homegrown races had their own rules and standards and thought the sport of racing could benefit from a governing body to establish standards and sanction specific races. And there's definitely some truth to the idea that a lot of the first NASCAR drivers had a history of involvement in bootlegging. And there was also a lot of bootlegging money that made its way back into the sport by funding cars and tracks and publicity. There wasn't a lot of segregation in bootlegging. People who were making whiskey and driving it around and drinking it were all over the racial spectrum. And they were all on the wrong side of the law together, basically. So... There were other black bootleggers, and Wendell Scott had a lot of history with this in this same part of the country. But that wasn't quite how Wendell Scott came to be a NASCAR driver. After his conviction in 1949, someone took him to a race at the Danville Fairgrounds. These races were not part of NASCAR. They were part of the Dixie Circuit, which ran several races in Virginia and North Carolina. Watching this race was exhilarating, and Scott thought it was something he might try to do. But he wasn't really sure how to go about getting into it. Simultaneously, racing promoter Martin Rogers wanted to figure out how to draw a bigger audience at the fairgrounds races. The Dixie Circuit was struggling in Danville because the economy in the area wasn't great and people didn't really have the extra cash to go spend at the races. Rogers eventually thought a good publicity stunt might be to introduce a black driver, somebody who was really good and could at least give the white drivers who were already part of the circuit a good run for their money. He didn't have a lot of luck finding someone who fit this bill. So he came up with an ingenious way to figure out which black men in Danville might be good at driving fast. He asked the cops. The cops told him that if they wanted a black man who could drive, they wanted Wendell Scott. So Rogers got in touch with Scott, and there's a little discrepancy in the dates, but it seems as though his first race was on May 23, 1952. He borrowed one of his old whiskey cars from a relative that he'd sold it to after it had become too recognizable to law enforcement. 
There are a lot of accounts that say that Scott came in third in his first race at the Danville Fairgrounds, winning $50. But according to his recounting of it in the book Hard Driving, The Wendell Scott Story by Brian Donovan, he started out really well, but pushed his car so hard at the beginning that it didn't have the stamina to make it all the way through the whole race. He pulled out a couple of laps before the race was over. In spite of this, and in spite of some of the spectators booing and throwing things at him, he loved that first race. He repaired the car that night, and the next day towed it to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, bringing some friends with him with the hope of racing it at Bowman Gray Stadium. Bowman Gray is a NASCAR-sanctioned track, and it was the first sanctioned track to do weekly races, holding them every Saturday night in the summer. It's likely that the first people he talked to at Bowman Gray that night didn't realize that Wendell Scott was black. He had a medium brown complexion that had kind of a ruddy tone and his eyes were blue. Especially with a hat on, people often thought that he was white. So at first, everything seemed to be progressing normally. He was allowed to register for the race, his car was inspected, and he was told that he would need to install a safety belt. He went over to the track's shop to buy one, and the next thing he knew, he was being told he couldn't race after all, but no reason was given as to why. When Scott had been talking to officials at the track, he'd been by himself, but when he went over to the shop to get the safety belt, he took some of his friends with him. And his suspicion was that when officials saw them all together, they concluded that he, like his friends, was black and banned him from the race. A similar scenario played out the next day in High Point, North Carolina. So Scott went back to the Dixie Circuit, where he scored his first win on June 4th, 1952, at the age of 30. And after a while, he started branching out from the Dixie Circuit into other non-NASCAR races in Virginia. And he started winning a lot of those, too. Even though he was being allowed to enter these races, it wasn't all smooth sailing. On July 24, 1952, he won the amateur class race and asked if he could enter the sportsman class race that night as well. The race's promoter asked the spectators to vote on it, and more than half of them stood up as a yes. But during the sportsman class race, a wheel flew off his race car and into the stands. Several spectators were injured. Some of the crowd was outraged, and news accounts of what had happened focused on his race. Meanwhile, Scott spent hours at the hospital afterward talking to the people who had been hurt. Violence among the drivers was also pretty common in this racing scene. If one driver ran another one off the track during the race, he might get punched for it afterward. And the idea of payback was also common. If you intentionally wrecked somebody's car during a race, they might wreck yours during the next one. Scott did everything he could to stay out of all of this. Although there were other black drivers before Wendell Scott started racing, he was always the only black driver at these events. And apart from being the only participant of his race, these events were places that were often thick with racism. In a world where a black man might be lynched for allegedly whistling at a white woman, there was no way he was going to run the risk of striking a white man over a stock car race. It's one of the things that's most incredible to me about his story is that he was in a basically exclusively white sport, almost. I mean, there were a a few other black drivers, and in some cases, like, um, all black racing teams and networks, but, like, for the most part, an exclusively white sport in a place that had active and overt violent uh, history toward the black community. And, like, the, 
The logo of the Dixie Circuit was a pair of crossed flags. One of the flags was the checkered flag that drops when the race is over, and the other one was the Confederate flag. Like, he was doing all of this in completely hostile territory. And and the only exception to just really keeping his head down and trying not to make waves would be when spectators or other races, racers threatened his children, which actually happened fairly often. Everything from shouting racist slurs at them to one case where somebody threw a lit firecracker at his son and burned his hand. But even then, he was a lot more likely to storm at somebody and shout at them than he was to actually strike them. And he also didn't have the luxury of payback. Scott had no sponsors, no paid pit crew, nobody to do his body work, and no mechanic other than himself. Some of his race cars even had the words mechanic, colon, me, painted on them. So if somebody hit him, he tried to let it go and fix his car later rather than making work and expense for himself by hitting them back the next time around. Apart from all of this, even his ability to claim his winnings was affected by his color. Many of the races had cash prizes, but he also often won steak dinners for two at local restaurants. But more often than not, those restaurants were segregated and refused to serve him. A number of times, he insisted that the restaurant give him what he had honestly and fairly won. And the restaurant either allowed him to come to the kitchen door and take his meal to go, or reimbursed him for the so-called value of the meal, which was always way less money than the meal would have actually cost if someone was paying for it. Wendell Scott was finally able to enter a NASCAR-sanctioned race in 1954. And we're going to talk about that and the rest of his NASCAR career on our next episode. I'm looking forward to that one because it also has a lot of excitement. (laughs) Uh, Do you have some exciting listener mail for us? I do. This is from Keelan, and it is about our recent episode about the Battle of Cajamarca and the fall of the Inca Empire. Hello, Holly and Tracy. My name is Keelan, and first I'd like to thank you by way of the podcast for making my commute to anywhere more enjoyable and less anxious. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead just a bit. What I'm writing about today is also to thank you for talking about indigenous Latin American history with a fair perspective. As a Spanish major, I've studied Latin America as part of the language and cultures I should be exposed to, and it has really opened my mind to the world, and your episode does that as well. It's heartening to know that not everyone is tainted by the exoticism that you often see associated with South America. On the fun note, I thought you guys might enjoy knowing that there are some people who are attempting to bring back the Quechua language in a much more contemporary light. One example of this is a cover of Michael Jackson's The Way You Make Me Feel, covered in the language. I have a link, and I hope you enjoy this piece of native culture. Best wishes, Keelan. We definitely both enjoyed the link. It's so good. Um, Yeah, it is really good. Um, we'll, We'll probably put it out on our social media after this episode comes out. Uh, I also wanted to note that we have had a couple of questions about how we spelled Inca um, in that episode. When you see it in your player, it is with a K. Um, And that is because even though a lot of dictionaries and style guides and things still um, use the spelling I-N-C-A, a K is more preferred among archaeologists and historians. And then actual Quechua-speaking peoples at this point. (laughs) So that is why we defaulted to that one. 
If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And we're also all over social media at Missed in History. That is where we have our Facebook and our Twitter and our Pinterest and our Instagram. If you come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, you will find uh, show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have ever worked on and a searchable archive of all the episodes ever. And you can find our podcast and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you find podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 